Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello. This week we're filling the gaps in our knowledge of teeth. We'll also meet the microbes in our mouths and we do an experiment to find out what is best, electric or traditional toothbrush. Plus, in the news, researchers grow new spinal discs in a dish. We explore the ghostly galaxy next door and scientists discover one of the largest, oldest structures on the planet. I'm Izzy Clark. I'm Chris Smith. And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. About one person in five suffers with a bad back and a common culprit is wear and tear to the intervertebral discs that sit between the vertebrae that make up the backbone. These discs act as fleshy shock absorbers. They have a soft jelly-like interior and a tough elastic outer surface. But as we age, they stiffen, shrink and deform and they compress painfully on nearby nerves. Artificial plastic and metal replacement discs are available, but these can also wear out. So scientists at the University of Pennsylvania have been exploring how to grow new spinal discs in a dish. Georgia Mills heard how from Rob Morg. So the central premise of this therapy compared to what's available now is that this is a living implant. It's an implant that will be made of a patient's own cells. And because the cells are there, the cells will be doing what cells in musculoskeletal tissues do, and that is continuously making new material and repairing damage. And so our hope is that unlike metal and plastic implants, this will be a sort of self-sustaining biologic implant, as durable as your original living intervertebral disc. Right. So these squishy bits between the, the bones of the spine, you wanted to sort of create them from scratch and put them in. Precisely. How did you go about doing that? Essentially, what we do is combine various elements together to create what we call a composite disc structure. And the way that goes about is we produce biomaterials that represent the different substructures of the normal intervertebral disc. These are materials that are based on hydrogels, so sort of water-swollen networks, sort of like jello. And that makes up the inner part of the construct that we've created. And then an outer part, which is sort of a tough, almost rubber band-like structure that surrounds the gelatinous uh, interior portion. Both of these materials are seeded with cells. We use uh, mesenchymal stem cells, which can be uh, harvested from adults. And we grow these in the laboratory for a period of time until they start to take on characteristics of the native tissue. How do you make sure it gets to be the right size and shape? So we realized that this was a big challenge to create such a large structure. So we started small, and we started actually making these on a scale of a rat disc, just a a couple of millimeters in height and maybe five millimeters in in diameter. Uh, So we optimized all that in a size that was suitable for a small animal, the rat, and we spent some time then evaluating it once we implanted it into a rat. After that, we thought, this is promising. Let's see what we can do at bigger length scales that would be more clinically relevant. We next went to the goat cervical spine, so the neck of a goat, essentially, and we started building constructs that were designed to function at that length scale. So we started building bigger and bigger discs and growing those in culture 
uh, in the laboratory. We got to the point where we were pretty happy with what we could produce uh, in the laboratory. And so what we've done recently is actually started testing those in a, in a large animal model, in this goat model. Right. So you've actually been putting these discs into a living goat? That's right, yes. For the last couple of years, we've actually been evaluating how these lab-grown living intervertebral discs function when we put them into a goat cervical spine. Right, and then after the discs have been put in, how did you uh, work out how effective they were? The main goal and the main function of the disc is mechanical. So it sort of supports your, the cervical spine supports your head as you turn your head to the left or the right. And the first thing we did was after a period of time of implantation, we asked how mechanically robust are these tissues? Uh, Are they maturing further after we implant them? Do they have the appropriate mechanical properties? So we compared their mechanical properties to the mechanical properties of a normal native uh, goat disc. Right, so do you just get a goat to do yoga? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, but we actually do have little motion sensors that we attach to their their horns so that we can see how many times they move their heads around and, and things like that. Right. So if you've got a stiff-necked goat, it would come up on the senses that it's not not doing as good. Exactly. Exactly. So how did it compare? Uh, it actually compared quite favorably. So uh, when we measured the properties of these goat discs and compared them to the implanted ones, after a period of about two months, they actually matched or exceeded the native tissue properties. And so we were quite excited about that. Oh, wow. Do you think this could move into humans, an animal that walks about on two legs instead of four? No, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, we chose the goat because if you've ever seen a goat, I'm sure you have, they have a fairly upright posture and they're very inquisitive animals. They use their heads a lot. They obviously run into each other and butt heads a lot, but they have an upright posture. So they use their necks in a manner very similar to how humans use their cervical spines as well. And in fact, as we've been getting this data, Harvey Smith, my clinician colleague and I, and and Sarah Goldbrand, who's another participant in the study, have been talking about, well, what really is the next step? And for us, the next step is to start talking to the FDA, uh, the Food and Drug Administration here in the U.S., about what it will take to transition this into phase one clinical trials in humans. And until then, at least we can help any goats with back pain. Rob Mork there from the University of Pennsylvania, whose work was published in Science Translational Medicine. Now, the Gaia Space Observatory craft was launched by the European Space Agency in 2013. And since then, it's been scanning the skies with a one billion pixel camera. Eat your heart out, any wedding photographers listening to us. Now, the aim of the project is to image billions of stars that are in our Milky Way galaxy to understand how our cosmic neighbourhood has evolved and how it behaves. Cambridge Institute of Astronomy researcher Wynne Evans is one of the scientists who's working on the project. Now, so far, they've discovered evidence of a hurricane of dark matter that's passing nearby. We'll talk about that in a second. But first, you've also found signs that our galaxy is a cosmic cannibal. Sounds alarming. Why? We've known the galaxy is a messy eater for some time, but this is the latest example of its guzzlings. <laughs> the galaxy is called Antlia 2, but we call it a feeble giant. It's feeble because it's got very few stars but it's a giant because it's very extended. It's the least concentrated galaxy that we know. Now, what observations has Gaia made that enable you to know that our Milky Way galaxy ate this other entity back in history? And when did that happen? Gaia is providing precise positions and velocities of billions of stars in our galaxy. We look for stars that are moving in a coherent way, different from the normal pattern of rotation of stars in the Milky Way disk. That is how we found Antlia 2, and the collision happened billions of years ago. In other words, so we've got this cloud, for want of a better word, of stars which are doing their own thing, and you can see that they're moving in a trajectory that's slightly different than what we can really see as native stars to the Milky Way. And so that tells you that those have obviously come in with their own agenda, their own direction, movement, velocity, and that's how you can pick them out and tell that they've been eaten. That's exactly it. The galaxy is a busy place, and there are lots of stars doing lots of things. We're trying to pick out stars that are having a particular dance, a particular way of moving. Now, in its early history, how would the Milky Way have ended up encountering this other galaxy that it then ended up consuming? The Milky Way is a big galaxy. It's a heavy eater, so it pulls in smaller galaxies by its gravitational pull. Antlia 2, or the feeble giant, was just unlucky and fell into the gravitational field of the Milky Way galaxy and was gradually eaten and pulled apart. And the stars that have been incorporated, do they now begin to adopt the same paths as the stars that are native to the Milky Way? Or or will they continue on some bizarre trajectory and eventually will leave again? Or have they been captured indefinitely? 
they are still intact at the moment, but as the uh, feeble giant falls towards the centre of the Milky Way, it will increasingly be torn apart, and these stars will form part of a diffuse uh, corona around the Milky Way called the stellar halo. Now, when you look at those stars, I, I, I presume that one of the other things you can do is to is to tell quite a lot about them in terms of their size, how developed, how old they are, and, and what they're burning and how fast. And so that tells you a bit about the history of the galaxy they came from. So w- what is their history? We can indeed do that. We can, with spectroscopy, uh, measure the metallicity of these stars, which tells us something about the chemical history of the galaxy. Um, it's harder to get ages of stars. That's really tough. So we know that the galaxy is very metal poor. So we do know that it was formed a long time ago, shortly after the Big Bang. Okay, well, that's interesting. And so this tells us obviously that a bit about how the patch of space that these galaxies were in and how they how they were formed in, what that was sort of like, what the arrangements must have been like in the early era of the universe then. Indeed, these are fossils, if you like, akin to the kind of fossils that we find in rocks on the Earth. They're telling us the conditions of the very early universe. And do they actually fit with our, our models? Because obviously scientists like yourself are, are designing models of how the universe formed and evolved and is continuing to evolve, and those are only theories. You've got to then apply data like these that you've collected in order to test those theories. So does it look like our models of the early universe are right? Well, Antlia 2 is a very unusual galaxy, and at present we can't fully explain it. It is so diffuse that the backbone of the galaxy, which is formed by the dark matter, must have what is called a core, so as to protect the stars and enable them to remain intact. And that is not currently predicted by our theories of galaxy formation. Oh, good, because that gives you something to to go after now, doesn't it? Because if it all fitted all the theories, life would be pretty boring. That's always the case with new data. (laughs) Now, you mentioned dark matter. I started on that point because uh, your colleagues are now saying the other thing that Gaia is detecting evidence for, possibly, is a hurricane of dark matter coming through. What's dark matter and why is there a hurricane of it passing through our cosmic neighbourhood? Well, dark matter forms the backbone of galaxies. It's probably some form of elementary particle and there's abundant astronomical evidence for existence, but there's no direct detection of this mysterious particle. What we've done is we've discovered a stellar stream and that itself is part of the disgorging of an earlier galaxy. It's a galactic meal, the remnants of an earlier effect of galactic cannibalism. So the stream is passing through the solar neighbourhood and it's accompanied by a stream of dark matter. Now that sounds rather terrifying, but the interaction of the dark matter particles with ourselves is very low, so we can go about our daily lives drinking coffee, having toast, without any ill effects. But this will have an important consequence for direct dark matter detection experiments, which are normally deep underground and are looking for tiny recoils. And how will this help you to... to try and fathom out what dark matter is? Well, the stream is hitting the solar system head-on, so there's a very large relative velocity between the Sun, the Earth, and these dark matter particles. So that will predict a large number of very high-velocity recoil events in these direct dark matter detection experiments. So this is a precise signal that can now be sought in these experiments, and if it is indeed found, that is very convincing evidence for the existence of dark matter. Let's hope you find it. Wynne, thank you very much for joining us. That's Wynne Evans from the Institute of Astronomy at the University of Cambridge. Still to come on The Naked Scientist, one of the oldest and biggest structures on Earth has just been discovered and later on we're chowing down on the science of teeth. But first, it's misconception time and Georgia Mills has been ruffling her feathers about this claim. If you're anything like me, a disproportionate amount of time is spent discussing which dinosaurs were the coolest. Was it the mighty Tyrannosaur, the armoured Ankylosaurus, or the fabulously feathered Archaeopteryx? Although, on occasion, someone might unwittingly chip in that their favourite dinosaur was a pterodactyl. To which, for the paleontological pedant, there is only one response. No, pterodactyls are not your favourite dinosaur, because pterodactyls are not dinosaurs. The offender then gets an unexpected and unwanted lecture in reptile evolution. The story explaining just why they're wrong starts over 300 million years ago when the ancestors of all modern reptiles and birds first appeared. Just like the beetles, they couldn't stay in one group forever and broke up or speciated. Like branches on a tree, different styles of reptiles start appearing, changing and then splitting up again all over millions of years. 
One of the branches that broke off contained the ancestors of all modern lizards and snakes, while another got busy becoming the crocodiles, who have remained virtually unchanged since before the start of the Jurassic. Evolution obviously adheres to the old adage, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Then, still before the dinosaurs begin, another branch of reptiles diverges. And this group did something a little unusual. Their front limbs turned over time into wings, and they took to the skies. They became the group known as the pterosaurs. The ancestors of all pterosaurs split off from this evolutionary tree before the dinosaurs came to be. So while they ruled the skies at the same time as dinosaurs ruled the land, they shouldn't be called dinosaurs any more than bats should be called cows. Another group that are frequently mistaken for dinosaurs are the ichthyosaurs and the plesiosaurs. These amazing reptiles found their way back into the oceans, and while they were terrifying marine predators, dinosaurs, they were not. So how do we know? The clue to how the family tree is laid out lies in the fossil record. And for dinosaurs, there are a few characteristics in their skeletons that every single member will have, from the long-necked diplodocus to the tiny feathered velociraptor. And these features include backward-facing shoulder blades, a hole in the hip socket, and holding limbs directly under the body. Pterosaurs and marine reptiles just don't have that many of the same characteristics, so we know they're not from the same group. And if that pterodactyl-loving offender can cope with any more correcting, you might also want to let them know there's technically no such thing as a pterodactyl anyway. It's an outdated term, and they're now known as pterosaurs. So that's why pterodactyls don't qualify as dinosaurs, or indeed anything. And it's also the reason paleontologists don't get invited to many parties. Sounds like George is angling for an invite, don't you think, Chris? Uh, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> as long as she promises not to talk about dinosaurs over dinner. Now, meanwhile, if there's some iffy-sounding science you've come across that would make a good misconception, then drop us a line at Naked Scientist on Twitter or email chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll take a look. Now, talking about um, the past, when we think about the ancient ones of the world, the Egyptian pyramids, for example, or constructions like Stonehenge, Scientists this week have done us proud because they've announced the discovery of one of the largest, oldest structures on the planet, and it is about the size of Great Britain. Incredibly, though, it wasn't built by humans. Something altogether a lot smaller did this one. And Eva Higginbotham heard what it was from Salford University's Stephen Martin, who initially went looking for something completely different. So we were in Brazil collecting bees, and suddenly these mounds started to appear and they're incredibly numerous and they're everywhere. Normally with termites, they're constructed of soil and saliva, but in the Brazilian population that we've studied, they're just waste. They're um, tunnelling underground, making huge tunnels, a massive network, and they have to get rid of the soil somewhere, just like miners. And so miners build slag heaps of waste stone. And so the termites have done the same thing with soil and they've just deposited all the soil above ground. How big are these mounds and how much space do they take up? How big an area are we talking? So first of all, they're about two to four metres high and they're about nine metres across. So they are large there's a mound about every 20 metres. So, in fact, they're incredibly numerous. There are millions of mounds, all in one area. The total area of estimated that they cover is about the size of Great Britain, which is a vast area for any species to build anything. Amazing. How have we managed to miss these mounds so far? You know, how can it be 2018 and we've only just found this area the size of Great Britain? Well, they're sort of hard to miss if you're in the area. But So the reason they haven't been found is that they live within the forest because the forest produces the dead leaves, which is what they, they feed off. The forest is just slightly higher than the mounds. And so even when the leaves have gone, the forest is so dense and thorny, you can't actually see the mounds. So it's just been one of these things where... There are very large areas still on this planet where, you know, scientists don't go and study. And so what's so special about these mounds? What's special is the insects still live underneath the mounds in the ground and the mounds are about 4,000 years old. We think we're the dominant life force on the planet. Um, in fact, we're not. The biomass social insects, that's ants and termites and, and some bees and wasps, are actually far greater than all the vertebrates. That's dogs, cats, people, elephants. 
The big difference is you never get to see them because most of them live in the ground or up in the trees. And here is a really stark example of the activities of a social insect that lives in the ground, but you can see their activities above it. And as people, we've never created a single structure or city anywhere near the size of these. So they're a very dominant force, the social insects. They've been here long before we have, and they'll probably still be here long after we've gone. It's a very poignant thought on which to finish, isn't it? That was Stephen Martin talking about his new paper. He's just published that in Current Biology. And speaking of bugs, if you wanted to go on a journey into the wonderful world of evolution, the London Underground might seem an unlikely place to start. But the tube tunnels have given rise to a surprising evolutionary connection that has nothing to do with trains, because the underground has its own species of mosquito. Genetically distinct from its above-ground relative, the London Underground mosquito was first documented anecdotally during the Second World War. This story has inspired a new book called Darwin Comes to Town, How the Urban Jungle Drives Evolution. Francesca Fazi took a trip on London transport to speak to the author, evolutionary biologist Menno Skiltausen. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. Nature gets into every gap, even here in the tube's dark tunnels filled with smoke and grime and rushing commuters. Evolution is at work. During the Second World War, London's residents used many of the tube-line tunnels as makeshift air raid shelters, hiding out with their families as the bombs rained down on their city. But many stories of the horror of this experience were punctuated with mention of an added menace. A particularly aggressive mosquito, the likes of which the families had not been used to in their lives on the surface. Few people paid attention to these accounts. But in the 1990s, a research team found that there was truth to the stories of a sinister underground mosquito. The scientific name is Culex molestus, or sometimes people say Culex pipiens molestus, so they say it's a subspecies of the regular mosquito Culex pipiens, but it is actually quite different, so I prefer to call it a separate species. Menno Schilthausen is an evolutionary biologist at the National Natural History Museum in the Netherlands. It is different from its closest relative, you could say the above-ground mosquito, in three ways. The underground mosquito prefers to bite humans instead of birds, which the above-ground mosquito does. The underground mosquito uh, does not mate in these large mating swarms that you see above ground. The underground mosquito really mates one-on-one in very confined spaces. And also the underground mosquito does not need a blood meal before it can lay its eggs, which the above-ground mosquito does need. So you have three fundamentally different aspects of this of its life history that have evolved away from the ancestor, which was the above-ground mosquito. In the short time in which humans had developed tunnels and begun inhabiting underground spaces, a whole new species had evolved. One of the cool things, I think, is that in the London underground, these mosquitoes have not only evolved away from their ancestors above ground, but also mosquitoes in different underground lines are genetically different from each other because they're sort of separated, live in different worlds. And so the mosquitoes in the circle line are genetically a little bit different from the ones in the Piccadilly line, for example. Like most biologists, he grew up loving the great outdoors, as far away from the effects of people as he could get. But unlike many others, his passion for evolution and studying natural selection has steered him back towards the cranes and cars of the concrete jungle. So much so, in fact, that he has written a book in which he outlines the amazing ways that nature adapts right in front of us in urban environments. In cities, evolution goes really, really fast. So you can actually watch evolution take place over a time span of decades, sometimes even years, and that makes evolution really tangible. And I think that's a really good way to show that evolution is a very mundane process, really. You don't need to study fossils. You don't need to go to the Galapagos to to see it happening. It's happening everywhere all the time, including in your own street and in your own backyard. Menno's favourite example of urban evolution, he tells me, is the city blackbird, which was the first bird to colonise cities in Europe and now shows multiple changes from its forest ancestor. The city blackbirds have shorter beaks 
In some cities, they also have shorter intestines. They don't migrate anymore. The forest blackbirds, which still exist, of course, they do migrate away during the winter. The urban blackbirds don't. But when is adaptation evolution? And when is it just learning? Take the famous example of blue tits in the UK, who learned to peck open the milk bottles left outside people's front doors. That was learned behavior. When would it represent an evolutionary shift? Well, it depends on whether genetics are involved. Of course, there's not a gene for opening the caps of milk bottles, but there are genes for inventiveness, for something called neophilia, so, so being curious about new things, and also for tolerance towards humans. Those are all things which have a genetic basis. Since 2007, more than half of the world's human population have lived in urban environments. And by 2030, it's believed that a full 10% of land on Earth will be covered by a city of some sort. Whether we like it or not, the world at the moment is in a situation that is unprecedented. We've never before had a situation where a single species, namely humans, is affecting the ecosystems of the world everywhere and in such a drastic way. Again, whether we like it or not, we are witnessing a very important, unprecedented, crucial change in the history of life on Earth. And we should be studying it. Right now, humans are one of the most important evolutionary forces. And we should really take that into account. Francesca Fazi reporting there. And if you'd like to find out more about any of the stories we've covered, the transcript and their references can be found on our website, thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. This week on The Naked Scientists, we are talking teeth. Coming up, I visit a team who've got a way to chemically rebuild our teeth. We explore the micro-monsters in our mouth and we'll take a look at the gruesome history of dentistry. But first, open your mind widely, because with us is dentist Nick Williams from Devonshire House Dental Practice. So first of all, Nick, what actually is a tooth? What goes on inside one? Yeah, OK, Chris, so adults have about 32 teeth in our mouths and they're made up of enamel, which is the hard outer layer, which is about 97% mineral. That's the white bit. Dentine is the middle layer, which is about 70% mineral. And then you have the nerve and blood supply in the middle of the tooth called the pulp. And that has extensions of the nerve that extends into the dentine. And when you get sensitive teeth, often that's the, the dentine's exposed there. When you say the dentine's 70% mineral, what do you mean by mineral? And what's the other 30% then? So it's mineral in terms of crystal called hydroxyapatite, and there's much more of that in the enamel, which makes it harder. It's a similar matrix to a bone. Um, and then the other bit is made up of collagen and other extensions of the nerve and blood supply, so it's quite a tubular structure. And the hydroxyapatite is the stuff that makes the enamel tough and hard, and when we put fluoride in toothpaste, that gives it additional strength, doesn't it? How does it do that? It does indeed. So if you have sugar in your diet, the bacteria feed off that sugar, and that actually can take mineral out of the tooth making it more porous, that's the start of tooth decay. And fluoride in toothpaste helps to remineralise the tooth so it can actually reverse the harmful effects of that decay. Because it's added to drinking water, isn't it, fluoride, and also yes. toothpaste. Mm-hmm. And is, it there in, is the amount in drinking water sufficient to actually protect teeth? That's a great question. It depends where you are in the country. It's a naturally occurring element, and it's often quite a controversial subject, water fluoridation. In fact, the Centre for Disease Control in America named it as one of the biggest breakthroughs in science and, and healthcare in the 20th century for protecting teeth because it's, you're getting a frequent application of that fluoride onto the teeth just by drinking that water with the fluoride in it. And that's clinically proven. Absolutely, the, the, yeah. The language yeah. that the adverts love yeah, to yeah. use, but it's clinically proven that, that that fluoride does protect teeth, it does strengthen teeth. Yeah, unequivocally. The, thousands of studies prove it, and it's one part per million, so it doesn't have to be very concentrated. Uh, and you'd be pleased to know that in Cambridge, the Cambridge Water Authority actually do add, <laughs> add to the water to actually get that ideal concentration. And apart from fluoride in toothpaste, what else is in toothpaste that helps us to clean teeth? Um, so I suppose in a nutshell, just a foaming agent. And interestingly, actually, a top tip is after you finish brushing, just spit out, don't rinse off because that fluoride will then actually stay on the teeth. Yeah, so well, a dental colleague of mine said, you know, lots of people go swish, swish, swish before they go to bed and it's the worst mm. thing you can do. 
because actually leaving some of that stuff sticking to your teeth, because there's also a sort of sticky agent in the, the material that's in toothpaste, isn't there, that makes it more sticky. And they said, you know, plonk it on your teeth before you go to bed and leave it on because it will help to strengthen teeth overnight. Definitely, especially if you've got sensitive teeth as well. You can apply some sensitive toothpaste along the neck of the teeth and that will help to reduce that sensitivity. Now, in terms of actually cleaning, physically using toothpaste, mm-hmm. what's best in the battle of the brushes? Electric or traditional manual toothbrush? What's the best way to clean teeth? I would tend to recommend electric toothbrushing over manual brushing. The aim of the game is still the same, but results are generally better with an electric toothbrush. We're going to run a little test here, aren't we? Yeah, we've we've found you a victim. Um, (laughs) Hello, Eva. Welcome. Um, Eva is our naked scientist intern at the moment. She's actually a PhD student studying how the brain develops. So we thought actually she'd put her mouth where her money is this week. (laughs) (laughs) And um, tell us what you've done in the name of science today. So today I have not brushed my teeth or used mouthwash or any other agent like that. So I brushed my teeth last night and then I haven't brushed them this morning or any other point during the day. So, so every dentist listening to this is now shuddering, Nick, but, <laughs> but this is all in the name of science. So um, you've also eaten a disclosing tablet that will show us where the muck is. Yes, I have. Yeah, I just chewed, just chewed that up a few minutes ago. And this binds to plaque, which is the, the stuff that coats your teeth and shows where the bacteria are. So Eva now has a blue mouth, Nick. So what yep. do you want her to do? Excellent. Well, it's, it's a real helpful sort of visual aid to help with brushing. It's something we use a lot with patients. So what I'd like you to do is if you can split your mouth into left and right, and if you brush your right-hand side with your manual toothbrush, then the left-hand side with the electric toothbrush, and then we'll see what the results are. Great. Um, and uh, we'll leave Eva doing that while we listen to the next bit of the programme. We'll come back to you in a, in a second, Eva, once you've cleaned thoroughly. If you want to see what her mouth looks like at the moment, we've actually got a very nice picture of a blue mouth. It's certainly very colourful, so <laughs> thanks, Eva. I'm interested to see where this goes, because I have to admit, I use a manual toothbrush, and I think I'm going to be changing very soon. Um, well, while Eva gets on with that, some of us don't actually particularly enjoy a trip to the dentist. Sorry, Nick. But if you lived a few hundred years ago, it could be a lot worse. I paid a visit to the British Dental Association Museum in London, where curator Rachel Bairstow took me through the horrible history of dentistry. The dentist didn't come about until about 1728, Before then, anybody could give you advice about your teeth or take your teeth out if that was necessary. Perhaps you would go and see the blacksmith if you were in a poor rural community to have your teeth out. Perhaps you would consult the barber surgeon who would also cut your beard as well as extract your teeth. (laughs) I saw a postcard here at the museum earlier that had... A jester, sort of surrounded by a crowd and some poor man waiting to have his tooth pulled out. Was it quite, I guess, a a form of entertainment almost? Well, I think it could be. Certainly there wasn't a a dentist, if you like. There'd be this travelling tooth drawer who would come into town, drum up trade. He's looking for somebody who's had toothache. Um, and he's going to erect this stage in the centre of town and he's going to whip up the crowd. They're all excited and he's going to get this tooth out and he's going to wave it around and perhaps he's going to pull a maggot out of his pocket and say, this is what's been causing your toothache um, because, you know, it was thought that a toothworm living in the tooth was the reason for tooth decay. It would be this great marketplace spectacle. Think of it as ye old Netflix of the 1720s. This entertaining extraction was certainly a last resort for the patient in question. But what do you expect from an era where oral hygiene wasn't a thing? And it wasn't just the poorer communities that were suffering with extreme tooth decay. Let's fast forward a few decades where the wealthy were eating more and more sugar. Well, once you'd had your teeth extracted, perhaps you'd like to buy somebody else's teeth. So the practice of transplanting teeth in the 1780s was quite a fashion. And rich people would buy the teeth of poor people who were willing to sell them for their money and literally planted from one mouth to the other. It didn't work, as you might expect, um, but nonetheless it's been immortalised in a Thomas Rowlandson cartoon from 1787, so it's a great record of that procedure. But if transplanting didn't work, the next thing that you would probably try is buying um, an ivory denture so this is a hippopotamus or walrus ivory denture beautifully carved great skill involved in this but um, there was no real accurate way of 
measuring the mouth. So it was pretty much one size fits all. Rachel showed me a pair of these ivory dentures. The gums were carved from white ivory and whilst replacement teeth were also traditionally made from ivory, they didn't always look natural. And so people started pinching teeth from dead soldiers on battlefields or took them from dug-up corpses. A lucrative business. But, of course, contamination was a big problem. No, they wouldn't last. You're putting them into what, in effect, is a pretty putrid mouth. Um, So they're going to rot, they're going to stink. It would be quite horrible. (laughs) And you thought morning breath was bad. But then things started to change. By the 1850s, we have a revolutionary product that comes in. It's called vulcanite, and it's a pink rubber. It came from America in the 1850s. It was cheap. It's much more easy for the dentist to make um, a set of dentures out of these. You would attach porcelain teeth that they've now got into that denture. It's, It's cooked, and it makes it hard, much more aesthetically pleasing. And a set of these is going to last you for your lifetime now. So much so that people would give them as wedding presents. But who was the dentist in question? Were people still using their local blacksmith? So the first qualification comes in in the 1860s. So we see in 1860 the LDS, the Licentia in Dental Surgery. Obviously as a result of that, these students have to learn somewhere. So they're the establishment of the dental hospitals and the dental hospital schools. So you're beginning to get the basis of a profession. You've got all this equipment that's coming in in the Victorian period. All these manufacturers are starting to make the equipment that the profession needs. So that's really, really helping. You've got a much more scientific understanding coming on. So it really is a boom time for the dental profession. We've got improved dentures, porcelain teeth, and finally the much-loved dentist drill was invented by a James Morrison in 1878 to prepare teeth for gold fillings. You could achieve 2,000 rotations a minute, so dentists have a very strong right thigh of this generation. Oh, yeah. Shall we give it a go? Yeah, let's give it a go. So Rachel is basically... There's a foot pump that spins this mechanic round, which goes up this massive rod and then is attached to a drill, which has a little mechanism at the bottom, which just spins round and round and round. And this is the drill that would eventually get into people's cavities, you know, look at what's going on there. Yeah, so he saw his mother using a sewing machine and he said, I can use that for dentistry. I've certainly heard that in Guy's Hospital in the 1970s, when there were power cuts, if they were in the middle of treatment and there was no electricity, this piece of kit would come out of the cupboard so in order that they could finish it off and you can control the drill speed, making it a pretty fine piece of kit, really. But what about oral hygiene? Were people cleaning their teeth to almost prevent the need for these there's one idea that actually soldiers returning from the first world war brought back with them the toothbrush that they had been issued arguably they hadn't used it to clean their teeth during the war they used it to clean their boots but nonetheless it was a toothbrush it begins that this idea of having a toothbrush in the family that actually the idea of cleaning your teeth it's beginning to take root it's going to take a long time But actually, you've got the founding of School Dental Society, you've got children's toothbrush clubs, all things that are set up to try and enable people to buy a toothbrush, to bring it into this concept of the home and to clean your teeth once a day. We haven't got to twice a day yet, but (laughs) once a day, it's a starting point. And actually, the importance of oral hygiene, that you can do something yourself as a patient... Oh, gosh, it makes me so glad that dentistry has moved on since then. That was Rachel Burstow from the British Dental Association. Now, speaking of toothbrushes, we left Eva, our colleague, scrubbing away furiously with an electric toothbrush before we played Izzy's piece there. And uh, now she's moved on to the other half of her mouth and is scrubbing away with a normal manual toothbrush. And you've been very diligent. Are you normally this diligent at home? 
Well, normally I use an electric toothbrush. You do? I do. So okay. it actually feels a little bit odd to be using a, um, a manual. And we asked Diva to eat a tablet which would show where the dirt and muck on her teeth were, having not cleaned her teeth all day. So Nick, uh, who's still with us, Nick's a dentist, what do you see? What's your verdict? First of all, I can see Eva's done a very good job, certainly better than a lot of teenagers that I see. <laughs> and the left side where you use the electric toothbrush, it's worked perfectly because that's lovely and clean. The right-hand side with the manual brush is just a little bit of the red stain along the gum line still and a little bit between the teeth, which is where the electric toothbrush is more effective at getting rid of that. Does that tend to be the normally the sort of danger area then? It's along the gum line, which is where we characteristically miss with a manual brush. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. That's the that's the real danger area, and that can then cause inflamed gums, bleeding gums, that can actually cause gum disease, which is the other problem that can affect the teeth as well as tooth decay. But your verdict is the electric toothbrush is doing a better job. Definitely, and the, with the two-minute recommendation, electric toothbrushes have a little timer, so you get that two-minute warning, and they'll also have a, a pressure sensor to avoid using too much force. One yeah. of the drawbacks of mechanical or manual toothbrushing is causing gum recession and wearing the tooth away, so all those things are prevented ideally. So that's that's great. I have a question in that I'm 27 and I've still got a wisdom tooth coming in and causing me lots of problems. I thought that I'd be done with my wisdom teeth years ago. So why why did the wisdom teeth take so long to come in? Um, yeah, that's a great question. We all would normally have a third set of molars, which are the wisdom teeth, and they come through anywhere from sort of late teens, early 20s to, to late 20s. And I think just now there's often not a lot of room for them. They do cause problems. They used to be taken out a lot more than they are now. Um, and with those teeth being left in, we do tend to find more problems for sure. Thanks, Nick. We'll rejoin you later in the programme for our quickfire dental Q&A. Now, talking of teeth, the reason it's so important to brush teeth properly is all to do with the build-up of a material called plaque, something we saw on Eva's teeth earlier. But what actually is this mysterious material and why does it matter? Well, here to explain is Gordon Ramage. He's from Glasgow Dental School. So, Gordon... What is plaque? Plaque is a collection of microorganisms, bacteria generally, which cooperate with one another, they antagonise one another, and they produce slime, and that slime sticks them to the teeth. So plaque is basically bacterial slime? Yeah, and I think the problem is that the Joe public would think about it as bits of food, and I think what we have to try and get the message across is that we have micro-monsters in the mouth. <laughs> and what are these, these microbes actually eating on? Are they just dining on what we eat? Yeah, absolutely. And I think our diet is hugely important. So I think we know an awful lot about things called streptococci. And we know that when we eat sugary sweets and other products that they turn that sucrose into slime and that helps them make them even more sticky. And what about actually, because people say that you get this acid attack, so you eat some food, this feeds you, but it also feeds your mouth microbes and they produce this acid surge. Where does the acid come from? Yeah, so because the bacteria are stuck there in the slime, they start to grow, and by growing they produce carbon dioxide, and that makes the acidity go even further down, so the pH goes really low. And once that pH goes really low, below 5.5, then it starts to demineralise the enamel that you talked about earlier. So the bugs are driving the low pH, which then basically starts to erode the enamel and then cause caries and tooth decay. How do the bacteria you have in your mouth actually uh, determine your likelihood of getting tooth decay? If you have bacteria that are better at making more acid more of the time, does that mean you're more prone to more tooth decay than someone who doesn't have that? Well, I think it really comes down to an individual. So we acquire groups of microorganisms when we're born. And somebody, for example, who breastfeeds versus somebody who's born caesarean might have a very different oral microbiome, so the types of organisms in their mouth. Um, and we know quite clearly that that's an implication and how you might then go on to progress to dental decay or gingivitis. So recession of the gum, bleeding of the gums, depending on the types of organisms you as an individual have, will have a real bearing on what you get obviously environmental factors like what you eat are going to play a key role what about if you snog someone who has rampant tooth decay but you don't know that do you end up picking up their their very sort of pro tooth decaying bacterial flora and do you then assimilate that into your mouth microbes and vice versa your oral microbiome or the types of bugs you have in the mouth are dictated to very early on in your life and you progress through puberty and so on they'll, they'll change you may acquire the same bugs the same way as if you shook hands with somebody. But the likelihood of them staying there long term, it's probably not overly likely. So it's quite difficult to acquire them unless you live with someone. 
and, and, and their presence for a long time. That's reassuring. Now, what about um, actually in the same way that some people like to try to manipulate the bugs that live in their intestines in order to achieve better health? And these are both prebiotic. You eat certain foods that select for better bugs, but you can also take probiotics. You actually ingest certain classes of microorganisms believing that this may change the spectrum of bugs that live in your gut and this will improve your overall health. Can we do the same thing then for oral bacteria? Could we eat certain things or wash our mouths out with a mouthwash with certain suspensions of bacteria that would change the composition of bugs in the mouth and therefore change our risk of getting dental decay or or gum disease? I think the concept is absolutely true. I think the ability to manipulate your microorganisms in the mouth with diet, so prebiotics, is probably more likely than probiotics so giving live bacteria into your mouth it's going to be very difficult and although there's a number of studies that are sort of suggestive that there's changes in your oral health parameters they're very limited so the evidence is pretty poor at this point in time not to say that it couldn't happen and I suppose in the same way as we have faecal transplants for helping people with C. diff infection um, there is a potential to maybe do oral microbiome transplants there is a potential there Sounds promising, doesn't it? Gordon, thank you very much for joining us. That's Gordon Ramage. He's from the University of Glasgow Dental School. We might pick up with him a bit later on in the programme. Is he? Now, as we've heard, if we don't look after our teeth properly, the enamel that protects our teeth breaks down and once it's gone, currently it can't be replaced. Now, researchers from Queen Mary University of London may have developed a way around this. They've created a protein that works like a scaffold for enamel. It's just the right shape and has the correct chemical configuration to extract from saliva the chemical building blocks of enamel. It then assembles new enamel in situ, stitching itself into the native tooth material in the process. So you could squirt it into a prepared tooth cavity and it would grow you a new tough enamel coating. Alvaro Mata showed me how. So I took a tooth out today to show it to you. Is that an actual tooth? This is an actual, this is an actual <laughs> tooth. And it actually has some lesions, which is to show you the type of lesions that we would use this material. Gosh, there are literally like black holes. Yeah. And, and is that what fillings actually look like? These are actually fillings. What we are developing is a material that would be implanted instead of these fillings, but that would actually look and behave like enamel. So what we are aiming to do is a material that can grow, it can behave as as natural enamel, and can also integrate with the natural tissue. So say goodbye to fillings. This works by placing a protein onto the tooth that helps connect tissue and arranges itself into a highly ordered structure. And that's important. Enamel is essentially tiny nanocrystals that are locked together, giving it its vital strength. Those developing crystals are then able to capture the calcium and phosphate ions that float around our mouth and keep building and building more crystals till the tooth is repaired. Alvaro led me over to a giant clear box full of Petri dishes and the cavity-ridden teeth in question. At the moment, this all-important process is divided into two stages. In the first stage, in this big plastic box, what we have is a control environment where we can assemble this protein material directly on teeth. And that's to make sure the protein has a fighting start in attaching to the tooth and arranging itself in the most structured way possible. Then we take that protein material and we immerse it, we put it inside a solution that is recreating the mouth environment, recreates the conditions of saliva. For the second stage, we took the tooth out of the clear box and placed it into a beaker of watery-looking solution, which mimics the chemistry of our mouths. But I really hoped that this wasn't someone's actual saliva. Exactly. Actually, we're doing experiments with actual saliva, oh, which is, yeah, for, for the moment, we're working with a solution that looks like saliva. And so, and again, it gives us the opportunity to understand how different compositions of that solution can affect the growth of this mineral structure. And so is that just full of, say, like calcium and the phosphates that you need then build up, essentially? Correct. And so it, we have calcium and phosphate ions we have we control the acidity of the environment which is very important and in general the environment that that is present in the mouth and how's it performed what have you found are you happy yeah we have very promising results so acid resistance is similar to enamel its stiffness is not quite that of enamel but we are getting close to it the material is integrating with the tissue the crystals are growing 
within the coating and also inside of the dentin tubules, inside of the, of the natural tissue. So the integration is, is also an important um, goal that we are working on. Gosh, so that looks really promising. So in an ideal world, if that all happens, how would you then, you know, go to your local dentist and say, oh, you know what, my tooth's not feeling so good. How would that work? Yeah, so what we're hoping is, is to develop a material that the dentist would be able to apply directly on the tooth of patients in an easy way, just like you go now and, and there are other materials that are being uh, put in our teeth. But in this case, it will be a material made out of these proteins. The first challenge is to be able to do it in an easy way that the dentist can do it in a practical, fast way, directly on, in the dentist's office. The other challenge is to have it stable so that as soon as you deposit it and you implant it, then you can start talking, you can start drinking, you can start eating, and everything, sort of that active environment of the mouth can take place. But yes, yeah, so it, it already shows promising properties. Well, here's hoping. That was Alvaro Mata from Queen Mary University of London. Still with us is uh, Nick Williams, he's a dentist in Cambridge, and also Gordon Ramage, who is from the dental school at the University of Glasgow. Right, it's quick-fire dentistry round, the pair of you. Uh, First question for you, Nick, this whole association between gum disease and heart disease, how does that work? So essentially, the plaque bacteria in the mouth can cause inflammation of the gum tissue, which then becomes more porous, really, to the bacteria coming into the body. Your immune system's then trying to fight that off. Um, you've essentially got a chronically inflamed state, which will then trigger all other um, inflammatory disorders in the body, which heart disease is one of them, the inflammation of the coronary artery, but also rheumatoid arthritis, dementia, diabetes. There are links with all of these diseases. Goodness, it's quite far-reaching then. And Gordon, do we know what microbes are the particular culprits or causative uh, reason why there is this association between poor oral health and heart disease? I think it's more about the functionality of the groups of organisms. So if you have more nitrate-reducing bacteria, then we're sort of healthier. And depending on the composition of those, we can't handle nitrates in our diet, then that has an implication in terms of our our own inflammatory system. And in terms of rheumatoid arthritis, we know absolutely that there's an organism called Porphyrmonas gingivalis, a bit like the dinosaurs from earlier, really, that we know that it produces autoantibodies, and that's the driver of rheumatoid arthritis. Gosh, right then. And another thing I'd like to know is charcoal toothpaste. This is something that supposedly gives you a dazzling smile. It's the latest craze. Does it actually work? The studies, obviously, most of the studies have been done on conventional fluoride toothpaste. The charcoal toothpaste, again, it's getting people to clean their teeth more, but a lot of their claims are, are actually unsubstantiated. So, you know, go for fluoride toothpaste. The charcoal can be a bit abrasive, so it can damage the teeth, in fact. Yeah, I wondered if it's actually making your teeth whiter because it's just scratching them down. <laughs> yeah, it can be the case. You raised the question of whitening. How does that work? And is that good or bad? Excellent. So, I mean, there was a bit of a wave of popularity of veneers, which partly came across from America, you know, perfect white smile. You see a lot of Americans almost like the piano keys, teeth. Well, the uh, teeth are quite frankly whiter than my toilet, especially <laughs> celebrities on television. <laughs> is, is that because they've glued stuff on the front of their teeth? That's not their real tooth I'm looking at. Absolutely. And I mean, the generic name for them is porcelain. But yeah, essentially nowadays, um, we would try and whiten the teeth, which is a sort of hydrogen peroxide gel, which just releases stains locked into the teeth and encourage people to combine whitening with adult orthodontics. If the teeth are straighter, they're easier to clean. So it's a win-win. And um, what's worse, Nick? I mean, sweeties, fruits, crisps, what's the worst thing for our teeth? Certainly high sugar options are best avoided. So sweets, um, certainly carbonated fizzy drinks have sugar in. Um, there are also a few which are considered a healthy choice, which, which can be damaging as well. Dried fruit is, a, is one best avoided. Oh, really? Yeah, essentially all the water's been removed from the fruit and it then becomes very sticky and adheres to the teeth and it can stay there for some time. Say parents, for example, your child comes home from school, you give them some dried fruit because you think, oh, that's the best thing for them. So what would be a, a better alternative to dried fruit? Great question. So I think, you know, certainly fresh fruit or um, raw carrot batons are a great option. If your child can eat nuts, they're fantastic as well. What about flossing? We haven't talked about flossing much, have we? Because one dentist put it to me, you don't have to floss all your teeth, just the ones you want to keep. Um, (laughs) Yeah, perfect message. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly something that I do. If you're doing it on alternate days, you're going to be removing a lot more food debris and bacteria from between the teeth, which will help with bad breath. It's the contact points of the teeth where you see a lot, often see a lot of tooth decay starting. So if you're flossing in that region, you know certain studies have shown you can reduce tooth decay by 50% with that. And when should we be brushing? In the morning, should I brush before or after breakfast? 
Great. So if you're having fruit juice with breakfast, that can soften the enamel. So if you brush after that, you can remove some enamel. So I tend to Is brush... Is that because it's acidic? Acidic, absolutely. So you get erosion and then you can brush away the softened tooth structure. But actually, I brush beforehand and then sugar-free chewing gum after breakfast is excellent. Removing cereals and things that actually will stick to the teeth. If you're pressed for time getting out of the door, you can actually leave that on the teeth. So sugar-free chewing gum in the car, perfect. Now, Nick, have you got a final piece of advice for us? I think it's either... The thing to remember is tooth decay is preventable. So really avoid those sugary snacks. And if I could go for a second one, definitely fluoride toothpaste, get in there twice a day and just brush really well. Well, Nick Williams from Devonshire House, thank you so much. And thank you to all of our other guests this week, Gordon Ramage, Rachel Bairstow and Alvaro Mata. Now, we've just about got time for Question of the Week, where Hannah Lavrentz Schlegelhofer has been sizing up this question. Hiya, it's Dottie from Cambridge here. My question is about dogs. So if you look at a Great Dane and then you look at a Chihuahua, they are so different. Do we know if a Great Dane meeting a Chihuahua recognises it as another dog? I put the question to Dr Charlotte Durantin, a French researcher specialising in dog behaviour. When you interact with another individual, it is essential to be able to identify them and to know if they belong to your own species or not, so you can adjust your behavior accordingly. Usually, physical criteria can be used. As for most animal species, all individuals are similar in shapes, sizes, proportion or color. But dogs are different. They are the first domesticated species and have lived in a human environment for at least 15,000 years. During this time, we have selected them for different purposes through artificial selection, which has led to all of the different breeds we know today. So this is how we end up with dogs the shape of sausages meeting dogs that look like bears. But do they recognise each other as the same species? It is known that dogs use different ways to identify each other as dogs and to communicate together. Auditory communication with sounds such as growls or barks, chemical communication with odors and visual communication with, for example, body position or face recognition. Smell is the most important of these canine senses. Donald Broom, Professor of Animal Welfare at the Department of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Cambridge, supplied us with this answer. When large dogs, such as Great Danes, encounter very small dogs, they approach them and sniff them as they would do to a larger dog. They must recognise them visually as dogs to approach in the way that they do, but the conclusive evidence for being a dog is their smell. Every dog is distinguishable from other species by its characteristic smell, and every dog has an odour that allows it to be recognised as an individual. These odours are not dependent on body size. Little dogs are treated as dogs, not as small animal prey to chase. Well, that's a relief for the more rabbit-sized dogs out there. But this is also important for mating. Female dogs on heat respond to approaches by male dogs, whatever the size difference. Big male dogs go through the courtship procedure with small dogs that are on heat, and small male dogs show interest in large female dogs on heat, even if they can't normally reach to mate. However, the small dogs may show more fear behaviour if approached by an unfamiliar large dog than they would do to a dog of their own size. There you have it. After sniffing out that answer, next week we'll be trying to pop the answer to this question from Malcolm. After watching the Sony film Passengers and seeing what happens to the swimming pool after a loss of gravity, I'd like to know what happens to an air bubble inside a mass of water when there's no reference to where Upwards is. Gosh, that's a weighty question to finish on. What do you think? You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on our forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And don't forget, it is our Naked Scientist fundraiser running at the moment. It's Giving Tuesday and we're trying to raise £50,000 by Christmas to support next year's programming and ongoing changes to our website. Now, we're doing very well and a big thank you to everyone who's kindly supported us so far. We are almost 10% of the way there so far. But we've still got a way to go. We had a competition a few weeks ago and the winners of our limited edition laser-designed plaques are Paul, Acel, Nigel, Daniel, Frank, Derek, Benjamin, Jay, Darren. 
and Anthony. So well done to all of you. We'll be posting you off your special limited edition Naked Scientist plaque in the post. We'd also like to say thank you to the following two donors who wrote very nice things on our donor wall. Um, and we're very grateful to you. That's Orla and Neve. Hello to your daughter as well, Neve. We understand that the two of you listen together. And speaking of listening, this week our special mystery prize goes to the donor who has had the funniest thing happen to them on their commute. So head to thenakedscientist.com slash donate and leave your story on our wall. And that is it for this week. Izzy put the programme together. Do be sure to join us next time for our monthly Q&A show. Our science panel are taking on your questions, so send them in right now. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or email chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the EPSRC and by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.